Turns me to Philemon. The letter to Philemon, it's near the end of the Bible. Right before Hebrews. It's only one page. If you get to the Revelation, you've gone too far. It's after all the T's, Timothy, Titus, Thessalonians. Philemon, we're going to look at verses 17 through 25. So background on this, Paul is writing a letter, it's a very short letter, some people call it a postcard, to a man named Philemon. Philemon was a Christian, and Paul's writing to Philemon and the church that met in his house. So it's sort of aimed at one person, but to be read in front of the whole church. And he's writing about Philemon, who, had, who owned a slave. And the slave had run away and met with Paul, and Paul is writing back to Philemon on behalf of this slave. So Paul is in prison right now. You can imagine the situation. He's in, his, he's in a house. He's chained up to a Roman guard all the time. He's writing a letter, and he's sending back Onesimus. And as we learned, Onesimus was very close to Paul. Paul says, he's my own heart. He's my son. And so Paul is very concerned about Onesimus, and he's also very concerned about Philemon. And so he's writing a letter to Philemon to take care of Onesimus. And so the whole book of Philemon is about reconciliation. It's about taking two people who shouldn't be together on good terms and providing a way forward for them to be together on good terms. And it's a, it's a theme that never gets old. As long as there are humans, there are divisions. And so Philemon is about reconciliation and reconciliation in the face of extreme social, political, and legal division. They weren't just neighbors. This is a slave and a slave owner. So uh, we look in verse 17. This is Paul's getting towards the end. And he says, If then you, Philemon, count me as a partner, receive him, Onesimus, as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention that you, to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. As we saw in our call to worship, Christ breaking down the middle wall reconciles us in himself. That's the point. Sin separates, the gospel reconciles. When you see separation you see sin. When you see reconciliation, you see the gospel. So in this passage, we're going to see three ways that Paul is saying, is teaching for us to achieve reconciliation. In the most extreme circumstances, how do you achieve unity? How do you bridge the gap? Three ways. Corporate identity, assumption of the cost, and partners in the work. So three ways, corporate identity, assumption of the cost, and partners in the work. So let's look at this first. In the first 
verse we read, 17, we see the corporate identity. Now, the word corporate, most of us think of a company, but it really means a body. So when you say corporate, we have corporate worship on Sundays. The body of Christ meets together, and we all do the same thing at the same time. We sing together, we listen together, we pray together. It's corporate worship. Why? Because there's corporate identity. So that's what Paul is saying here. He says, Philemon, rich, powerful slave owner, I'm sending back your runaway slave. So there needs to be some reconciliation, right? Paul says, if then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. Now think about who's talking. This is Paul. Paul was trained by Jesus Christ himself. You don't get a better teacher than that. So if Jesus can't be here, the next person you want to be here is Paul. And when Paul speaks here, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what he is saying is what God is saying. So Philemon would say, of course I want to be partners with you. Who else would you want to be partners with? Paul is the ultimate ministry partner. Paul says, if you want to be partners with me, the apostle, be partners with Onesimus. Treat Onesimus like you would treat me. Treat the runaway slave like you would the apostle. Why? Because Paul calls all of them brothers. So he says in verse 17, count me. Then he says in verse 16, before that, no longer a slave, but Onesimus would be a beloved brother. Then in verse 20, he says to Philemon, yes, brother. What did he just do there? He called the slave and the slave owner by the same title, brother. Paul is saying, because we're all brothers, what's the basis for that? We've all been brought into the body of Christ. Therefore, everyone in the body of Christ is with Christ, and that's the only distinction. So Paul says, I'm in Christ, Philemon's in Christ, and everyone's okay with that distinction because that makes sense. And then he says, Onesimus is in Christ. So if you receive me, then you should receive Onesimus. What's the difference? Now, on the surface, there's plenty of differences. But in the ultimate reality, there is no difference. There's one distinction in this world that matters. Are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? And when it comes down to reconciliation, Paul says, I'm in Christ, you're in Christ, and Onesimus is in Christ. Therefore, whether I show up or whether he shows up, it's still a Christian. That's radical. Paul is saying that the slave and the apostle and the apostle are interchangeable. They're interchangeable in the body of Christ as far as status is concerned. So in verse 13, he says, uh, talk about Onesimus, whom I wish to keep with me that on your behalf he might minister to me. In other words, he's saying when Onesimus ministers to me, it's like you're ministering to me. In other words, Onesimus, you, doesn't matter. Then he says to him, receive him like you receive me. Whether I show up, whether he shows up, same status. And then this is interesting. Look at verse 20. He says, yes, brother, let me have joy from you. You know the word joy there? It comes from the same word as Onesimus' name. Only time it's used in the whole Bible. He's saying, be like Onesimus to me. Now, Maybe you don't see how radical that is, but he's telling the slave owner, the, the sophisticated, cultured man, 
Be like a slave. Be like your slave who you didn't like. I want you to act like him. What's going on here? They're all in Christ. There is no difference. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, slave owner. All are in Christ, so all are equal. Now, who is Onesimus? Let's put it in modern terms. Onesimus is a criminal. He broke the law. He stole. He ran away with the money. He's a fugitive. He illegally immigrated to where Paul is. That's who Onesimus is. So Paul says, take this criminal, this fugitive, back as if it was me. Treat the fugitive criminal like you treat the apostle. Why? Because he's a good person? Because he did the right thing? Because he's a Christian. This is how you reconcile Christians together, based on their standing in Christ. Miroslav Volf said, the work of reconciliation should proceed under the assumption that, though the behavior of a person may be judged as deplorable, even demonic, no one should ever be excluded from the will to embrace, because at the deepest level, the relationship to others does not rest on their moral performance, and therefore cannot be undone by the lack of it. The will to embrace, to accept, to reconcile is not based on their moral behavior. What is it based on? Their union in Christ. So in verse 20, he says, Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. That is the basis for reconciliation, that all come to Christ at the same level, and within the body of Christ, all are at the same level. Slave, slave owner, apostle, good person, bad person, criminal, law-abiding, all are the same. Now look how Paul expects to be received in verse 22. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. In other words, treat me with respect when I get there. I'm, I should be honored because I'm an apostle. But notice what he said before that? Treat your slave as if it were me. Treat your slave with the same respect that you treat your pastor. Why? Because there's no difference. There's no difference. Why would you treat them differently? Are there two levels in Christ? Are there two kinds of Christians? There's one in Christ, so treat everyone with the same respect. Receive Onesimus like you receive Paul. And so for us, how do we receive Christians? The same way. Whatever their behavior is, whatever their standing is in the world, whatever their relationship is, if they're a Christian, they receive the same greeting as all other Christians. That's a hard saying. James 2, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with fill in the blank, good behavior, good manners, good clothes, money, st status, legal status, political status, Whatever you care about. Think about someone you respect and look up to. Think of that person. And there also should come in a, the opposite. Who do you not look up to? Who do you look down? Who do you say, I don't want my kids to be like that. I don't want to behave like that. Both those come into the church. And you say to the one, you sit here in a good place. 
And you say to the poor man, you stand here or sit at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become a judge with evil thoughts? Now, God doesn't just say treat everybody the same here. He says, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. If you treat one Christian any different than you treat the other Christians, you are showing partiality. That is sin. And are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. If you treat someone better than another, you're guilty as if you're a murderer. Same law. So speak and so do those who will be judged by the law of liberty. We have a higher law, the law of liberty. You're free to treat everyone the same. You are not required to treat people any differently. You can just approach everybody with liberty. Everyone's the same. That's the law we live by. Other places called the law of love. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The love of Christ triumphs over lawbreakers. It triumphs over immorality. It triumphs over all the sins you can name. So in a church, what do we do? Do we receive people based on their standing in Christ, or do we receive people based on their behavior? If you receive them, if you treat them differently based on their behavior, that's sin. That's not Christianity. That's anti-Christianity. If you receive them based on their standing in Christ, that is what God wants. Every Christian represents Christ. Therefore, they should be received as Christ. And Paul is saying, that may be hard for you to understand, so receive them like you receive me. Paul being the most important Christian, he said, there's your standard. If, it, if you need a practical illustration, think how you would receive me. Now receive the lowest like that. Sanyu Ralu, who's an Indian theologian, talking about the caste system in, in, uh, in India, where you, live in, where you live in a caste and you can't get out of it, goes to this passage and commentates on that. He says, this belief that people can change must characterize our ministry if we want to be relevant to our society. Think in the context he's talking about, changing from a system that had been there for a thousand years, which is so often indifferent and apathetic, our society. There is great need for the body of Christ to accept and absorb into the fold of Christ those considered outsiders. It's easy to accept people like you. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is accepting people, absorbing them who are not like you, who are outsiders, making them insiders. Based on what? Identity in Christ. If you can't see someone's identity in Christ, you are judging with the world's standards. And the world's standards are sinful, and sin causes division. How do you make a church divisive? Use the world's standards to judge people. How do you unify a church? Use Christ's standard. And his standard is very simple. If you're a believer, you're in. If you're not a believer, you're out. That's it. So that's the corporate identity. Paul, Onesimus, Philemon, all the same in Christ. Therefore, it should be treated the same. But then Paul goes on even further. He puts his money where his mouth is. He doesn't just say, do the right thing. He says, I'll start. 
Verse 18, but if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. Now, in this next sentence, this is a signature. This is how you would sign something in Greek. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. He's writing a blank check, literally. He's writing a note, and he's saying, I'm signing it with my own hand. Whatever money you want, I'll pay it, and I'll sign it to prove it. It will be a legal document. Onesimus had fled. He had stolen money. We're not sure if it was maybe he had stolen actual money or just his own services that he had promised were taken away, so it's a theft. He had fled to Paul, and Paul is saying, I'm not saying who's right or wrong. I'm just saying I'll pay. You see how radical that is? He doesn't say whoever turns out to be wrong, they'll pay. He says, I'll pay no matter who's right or wrong. Onesimus creates the debt. Paul assumes it. You want to reconcile? You got to pay the money. Even if you didn't make the debt. That's Christianity. Paul is so eager for reconciliation he removes the physical financial barrier to the spiritual problem. He says, what's getting in the way of this? Money? Okay, I'll pay it. Now you guys get together and make it work. If you're not willing to put money down, you're not really interested in reconciliation. You see how practical the Bible is? It's not just spiritual ideals. It's write a check. Literally, write a check. Take away the barrier. Why does Paul say this? Because that's exactly what Christ did. Christ didn't just come down and teach good things and say, repent and believe. He said, repent and believe, and I'll die first. Amen. So Amen. Christ wrote a check for everything, all the money he could have ever made. He gave it. So Paul's doing the same thing. You see, we want reconciliation, but we don't want to put any money down. Look at the Bible, because this is going to get controversial real fast in a second. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying actual Roman money, not spiritual money, not ideals. He's saying, I'm going to write you an actual check. That's in the Bible, right? Okay. There is a problem in America between different kinds of people, racial problems. There's not reconciliation happening. As we said before, desegregation happened, but integration didn't. Native Americans, teenagers, are three times more likely to put in detention than white teenagers. Black women are three to four times more likely to die in pregnancy than white women. Black men charged with a drug offense that's the same as white men are five times more likely to be put in jail. Is there a problem in America? You either don't know or you don't care. That took me about 15 minutes on government websites. I'm not pulling this out of some Marxist handbook. These are statistics. Because you know what? People who die in jail and pregnancies, they don't care about Marxism, socialism, capitalism. Teenagers going to jail, you know how you want to ruin the rest of your life? Get thrown in jail as a teenager. There's a racial problem in America. There's a citizenship problem in America. And the church is more divided than the world on the issue. The surveys they set take, if you ask a black non-Christian and a white non-Christian about these issues, 
they have different opinions, like 20% different. If you ask a white Christian and a black Christian, they have 80% difference. Why is there more division between Christians than there are in the world? Because American Christianity, specifically white evangelicalism, is based on a consumer model. You go to the church you like, you listen to the preaching you like, you get the music you like. And if you don't like it, you leave. That consumer model says, I don't pay, I get paid. I get what I want. And if I don't get what I want, I'll go down to the church down the road and get what I want there. That model of Christianity, which has been here for a long time, says, I don't have to sacrifice. Somebody else needs to sacrifice. I'm right. I don't sacrifice. Paul is saying, doesn't matter who's right. I'll pay the money to get people back together. Luke 10, good Samaritan, who is Jesus. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. There's no money put down. There's no reconciliation happening. The Bible teaches where your money is, there's your heart. If your money's not in it, your heart's not in it. You want to see reconciliation in the church? Put your money down. Now, what's that look like? I don't know. Maybe reparations? Too far? Is that what Paul says here? He says, there's a racial problem. There's a a class social problem here. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand who didn't cause the problem, who didn't perpetuate the problem, who has no responsibility to this problem that was created without his knowledge. He says, I will repay. Who's going to pay the reparations for Onesimus and Philemon? Not the people involved, the person who wants the reconciliation to happen. How concerned are you about reconciliation? How much are you willing to pay? You see, you know what Paul did here? Let's, let's jump on another topic. Paul loves Onesimus like a son. He says in verse uh, 10, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. In verse 12, I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart. How long had Onesimus been with him to achieve that status of loving family relationships? A week? Two weeks? A month? Six months? Paul is chained up in his house. Right? He's a house prisoner. He's not leaving his house. So how did Onesimus and Paul meet? Think about it. Onesimus flees, breaks the law, illegally crosses the border, lives with Paul. Paul harbored a fugitive for months supporting him, working with him, caring for him. If you can only see the Bible through political lenses, this is going to sound like liberalism to you. But that's because you approach the Bible through politics. What you need to do is read the Bible, see what it says, then go back to politics. You're going to be political one way or the other. Start with the Bible. Paul took care of Onesimus while Onesimus was breaking the government's laws. Why? Because Paul put his money where his mouth was. Are we doing that? 
You want to fix problems in America? Start with your house. Start with your paycheck. See, all we want to do is we want to talk about the government changing, changing the laws and the policies, because those never affect us. We can have grand plans about justice and legal issues and political stands because we never have to write a check. We never have to open up a, a room in our home. We never have to do anything. We just talk. Paul says, I'm not going to talk anymore. I'm going to write a check. And if you're not willing to give up your comfort to get some physical problems out of the way in order to facilitate spiritual reconciliation, it's not going to work. Too long, we've tried to keep spirituality in a little box and politics in a big box. This started a long time ago. When the Great Awakenings came to America, they said, you make a personal decision to follow Christ. And that's it. That went into the second Great Awakening. Make a personal decision. Okay, but then what? Then what? Philemon is all about the then what. You see, Philemon, Onesimus, and Paul had already made the personal decision. What comes next? You see, have you made a personal decision to follow Christ? Are you in Christ or out of Christ? If you're in Christ, you need to know what comes next. Here's what Paul is saying comes next. Put the money down. Open up the room in your house. Sacrifice for other people. Why? Because it's exactly what Christ did. He came down. He wrote the money. He paid the check. And he opened up a room in his house. For you. The sinner. The lawbreaker. The evil, hateful person. God came down for us. And now we're going to turn our back on people who we think have broken the law too? Do they must first behave well, then we'll accept them? That's not the gospel. That's the world. We want to see reconciliation. You got to do some physical work. You got to make some physical sacrifices. You aren't allowed to put your spiritual spirit in one side and your body in the other. Your spirit follows Christ, but your body doesn't. Your heart follows Christ, but your wallet doesn't. You come to church on Sunday, but the rest of the week's yours? No. Either your house is God's all the time, or it's not God's at all. Either your money is God's all the time, or it's not God's at all. Either you care about reconciliation all the time for all people, or you don't care at all. The challenge to follow Christ is destructive to this world. Do you see what God's calling us to do? It's upend everything. It's turn over our whole way of viewing the world, which is exactly what Christ did. And his followers turned the world upside down. We're not turning the world upside down. We're maintaining the status quo. We're doing the same thing we've done for hundreds of years. We're doing the same thing we are taught by people in the past who perpetuated problems, who created racial divides, who created economic divides. We're following them. We haven't changed, which means there will not be reconciliation. 90% of churches in America are 90% of the same race. Why? Because sin divides. And if sin divides and churches are 90% divided, that means 90% of churches may not be preaching the true gospel all the time. They may be selectively preaching the gospel. They're preaching follow Christ with your heart and then stop. That's not the gospel. And you don't need to talk about politics. You need to talk about the church. 
What's this church going to do? Not with the Republicans and the Democrats. Let me give you a heads up. They're going to do the wrong thing. Just solved all your political problems for you. They're going to do the wrong thing. What's the church going to do? Is the church going to follow the Bible or is it going to deal with politics? Is it going to react off of liberalism or conservatism or is it going to follow the Bible? Is it going to say, well, wait a minute, I heard a liberal say that, so I'm not for it. I heard Donald Trump say it, so I'm not for it. That's partiality. What's the Bible say? But it goes on. You see, you corporate identity, you assume the cause, and you're partners in the work. Reconciliation happens when friendship happens, when people work together. Look what Paul says throughout this letter, verse 1. Paul, prisoner of Jesus Christ, Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier. Verse 17, if you didn't count me as a partner, receive me as him. Look at the end of the chapter. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ. Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. Why did Paul achieve reconciliation? Because he worked with people. Like he literally did stuff with them for the gospel. Is our church working together to do things? Do you know why there's not a lot of community happening? Because there's not a lot of service happening. Paul says, Philemon, you need to get along with Onesimus. How? By receiving him as a partner in the ministry, working side by side. Friendships are built through common purpose. I saw a video uh, someone sent me, a World War II training video, and it starts out with a black man and a white man talking to an English lady. And the English lady turns to the black man and says, I'd love to have you over for tea. <laughs> kind of like that. And, and when I first watch it, I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. Then I realize, wait a minute, this is 1942 or something. And so the white guy turns to the camera and says, did you see what happened there? Now, you may not be used to that. And I'm like, used to what? He's like, the lady inviting the black man to her house. I'm like, oh, that's right. And then he said, but we're not in America anymore. He said, we're in a different country, and if we bring our prejudices over with us, we'll never get rid of them. And they went and talked to a general. So this is a promo, like they would give these training videos. He said, we're all in the army together over here. We're all working for the same purpose. We are first American soldiers. That's what matters. And you know the military, based on that kind of philosophy, is the leading edge of integration. You want to see the most reconciliation happen in the world? Join the army. Because they realize when you're fighting, I don't care what color your skin is. I want to know who you're fighting with. That's what Paul's talking about here. He even uses the word fellow soldiers. The reason divisions happen in the church is because we're not working together. We're not serving the same cause. We're doing our own thing. We're serving little. We say, well, I sacrifice. Do you sacrifice with people? Are you joining up with other people in the church to achieve some goal? Paul loved to work together with other people. In verse 22, it says, But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers. Now, here's something you don't get in English. Where it says your prayers, that's plural. He switches from talking to Philemon to talking to the whole church. He says, all of you together are going to have to pray. All of you together are going to have to work. You want Onesimus and Philemon to get along? The whole church is going to have to work together on it. You have to come together and pray together. You're going to have to come together and serve together. There's no reconciliation by yourself. You see, we want practical. Practical is do something for somebody else with other church members. 
Are you doing that? Or are you trying to serve by yourself? The work of the gospel ministry raises us, raises us up above differences. The work of the ministry. Not the belief of the ministry. The work of the ministry. See, we come to church and we listen, we sit, and we go back and we talk. But when do we work? When does the church come together to work? Lightfoot says, he's talking about the word in verse 17 where it says partner. That's the word koinonia. Should we get the word fellowship? He said, those are koinonia who have common interests, common feelings, common work. Reconciliation happens when we work together. Why should we work together? Because we're all serving Christ. There's only one work worth doing, spreading the gospel, serving people. Reconciliation will happen when we set Christ above our money, our comfort, our families, our country, our needs, and serve him together. Let's pray.